Hello, and welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host. The National Association of Neonatal Nurse Practitioners and its members are committed to providing safe, ethical, and professionally accountable care. All healthcare professionals are affected by the challenges associated with role expectations and human performance factors. NANAP recognizes that fatigue, sleep deprivation, and the extended shift lengths or hours that neonatal nurse practitioners often work present potential safety risks for patients, providers, and employers. The last NANAP position statement on APR and shift length and fatigue was published in 2016. Over the last year and a half, the Council requested an update to that position statement. The authors of the position statement were Dr. Terry Cavalieri, Taryn Edwards, Carol Green, and Roxanne Stahl. The position statement was approved by both NANAP Council and the NAN Board of Directors and has been officially added to the NAN website for reference. Joining me today to discuss this new position statement are two NMPs who were members of the NANAP Council and co-authored the APRN shift length position statement, Taryn Edwards and Roxanne Stahl. They will be discussing in depth the research and work behind updating the position statement as well as recommendations to improve your own work environment to not only ensure the health and safety of our patients, but also the health and safety of all APRNs. Let's get right into it. Hi, Roxanne and Taryn. Thank you so much for joining us today. So NAN just released in October their position statement on advanced practice registered nurses shift length and fatigue. We also talked about it at the NAN conference. How did NAN and the NANAP Council come up with this position statement? So this is Roxanne, and I was actually on the uh, the NANAP Council, and I took this as um, something I spearheaded and chaired. And actually, this is all member-driven. So originally back in 2013, when we got these questions in, it was driven mostly by our NNP colleagues that were on each coast. And I remember talking specifically with people on the East Coast, and they were they were begging us to help them. And they were asking about fatigue and all the workload they had. And specifically in New York, they were getting handed a dozen pagers at five o'clock sign out. And they had to be on all night with 40, 50, 60 babies. And then they had to come back and, you know, repeat shift after repeat shift because they were short staffed. So they begged us to come up with guidelines because people at this time were doing 72 hour shifts longer, a week at a time in these NICUs, the big NICUs. And our role has really changed, as we all know, historically, that where we used to be day shift only and do grower feeders and help, we're now frontline. So that's kind of the history of this. This paper is a revision, and we were lucky enough to get three of the original members of the task force. So I'm going to let Taryn take it from there. Um, and then I am on the NANUP Council, uh, and so... In the past two years, we looked at all the position statements that NANAP had published and went back to determine which one needed to be revised and which ones didn't. And we all felt that the APRN shift length and fatigue on patient safety needed to be revised given new workforce data um, that was published by our group, um, as well as what Roxanne said, really the change in our role as APRNs. 
And so over the last year and a half, um, myself, Roxanne, um, and then Carol Green and Dr. Terry Cavalieri worked diligently to look at all of the data uh, and really also look at what other uh, professional organizations were recommending for their healthcare professionals. And so specifically looking at ACGME guidelines, ACOG, um, nurse anesthetist, and so on. And so we took all of that into account as we updated um, the overall content of this position statement as well as our recommendations. And we're going to talk about both of those in this episode. Yeah, so like Taryn, at the beginning, we were one of the first nursing professions to step up and write fatigue guidelines, which, you know, once again, go NNPs. So CRNAs didn't have anything. They just said, you know, be careful in their guidelines. Um, so look at what, what we've done. We spearheaded that as well, the drive for all um, advanced practice nurses to start looking at this. So, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So it's amazing the power of nurses when you get a group together and especially advanced practice nurses, what they can accomplish, like creating this position statement. However, I sense that this could be controversial because everybody wants to achieve work-life balance, right? We uh, want to give excellent patient care, but we also want to maintain a life outside of work. And sometimes that might mean 24-hour shifts to somebody because then they have more free time. Um, so how would you propose to somebody that was having difficulties balancing the fact that they want to provide page, safe patient care but also maintain that work-life balance? That's a great question. It's a lot of time that we spent um, in discussion as we were creating the position statement. I think it's really important for all the listeners, as well as anyone who references the position statement, to really come um, in to this podcast or come into reading the position statement in a vulnerable state, um, to be introspective, and to spend some time really identifying what your values are. And so, of course, we all as nurses and APRNs want to provide excellent patient care. And so I think it's important as you go through what the data that we're going to present, as well as the recommendations, to be able to say, this would work for me, this would not work for me, and really take what you need from this document to support you and your practice, as well as your employer, as well as your group of advanced practice nurses that you're working with. And you said it, it's recommendations. It's not law. It's not set in stone. It's something that you as a advanced practice provider can bring to your place of employment to say, hey, you know, we're, we're putting patients at risk because we're experiencing fatigue. We are maybe increasing our um, patient safety uh, initiatives. Like this is something that we need to, to discuss and bring it to the table. It's a good platform to just start, to start that discussion. 
Yeah, I want to throw in here that we we didn't go into this paper revision with the intent to limit this to 12-hour shifts at all. And that's still not our intent. We don't know. Um, but it just became overwhelmingly clear as you listen to Taryn talk about the review of literature, we all just started saying, oh, my gosh, it was just self-evident that we needed to take a hard look at this at shift length. And we were also interviewing our younger cohorts and the newer NNPs, and they were telling us that they were being forced to work 24s when they only wanted to do 12s. And I remember when I was a new NNP a long time ago, and I only wanted to work 12-hour shift, day shift, so I'd have somebody there with me. And I had to look high and low for a job at the time. So we also have that component of the new ones that want 12s. So you did mention a lot about looking at the data for patient safety. So we're all familiar with the Joint Commission, and they released the 2022 National Patient Safety Goals. So how are they contributors to patient safety, and how did you utilize that when you're forming the position statement? Well, I think it's always important to look at the hospital governing body, right? And so um, for 2022, they had seven national patient safety goals. Um, some of those, I mean, they're all applicable, but what we really focused on um, and pulling from this was uh, the use of medication safely, improving staff-to-staff communication, um, and alarm fatigue, and using alarms appropriately. And so from there, um, that kind of like guided us to then dig a little bit deeper um, about, okay, what are contributors um, uh, to patient safety and what are some things that inhibit um, a patient from uh, being safe and to reduce harm. And so from there, that's when we like really dived into the data. What do we have to address in order to meet these national patient safety goals? But ultimately, like the big factors of the paper was the patient safety. And so we pulled out the ones related to that. So after the review of all of the literature, what were the key components of safety, patient safety that stuck out the most and could be related to the NICU environment? Um, Key components that um, our group found were patient acuity. So the higher um, patient acuity the higher level of care needed um, was equally proportionate to increased risk of errors, and that was statistically significant. And I want to just spend a little bit of time on that. So we're going to talk about, towards the end um, of this episode, about recommendations. And so when you're talking about a level four NICU, you're talking about the most sick, and then most acutely ill, and then if you then take that in comparison to the number of infusions, the number of high-risk medications that the patient is on, the number of interventions the patient is getting, um, treatment modalities, all of those things can then increase the risk of error and patient harm. The expertise of the nurse as well as the APRN is extremely important to keep the patient safe, as well as the working conditions of the APRN. And so we're looking at the APRN to patient ratio, the physical layout of the unit. Are they 
single rooms? Are they pods? Are they multi-room? Are they shared rooms? Are you able to see the monitors? Are you able to hear the alarms? And some of that, you may come back and say, well, that's the nurse's responsibility. My response to that is, well, one, we're all nurses, and two, we work together as a team in order to keep all babies safe all of the time. So looking at the physical space in which you are practicing in, the availability of technology and resources, are you able to perform your job in the most proficient and safe manner to provide excellent patient care? The other important data point that we found for patient safety, and there's more and more data and literature coming out about the importance of provider-to-provider handoff and decreasing interruptions during that safety moment so that when I'm handing off to, say, Roxanne, I'm able to give her precise information about a patient, and she is able to take that information, create her plan for the day or the night or 24 hours, um, and be able to perform her job based on the handoff that I gave without interruptions, but also to use the electronic health record in order to facilitate that communication as well as using it to summarize my verbal handoff to the next provider. Right. That was a big thing, Taryn, was standardization of handout, handoffs. Yeah. Excellent point. Um, and I think that really hit home for me because as I transitioned from an experienced neonatal nurse to a novice nurse practitioner, and even now today, you know, 12 years later, practicing as a neonatal nurse practitioner, there are times where we're in a patient safety moment. We're doing handoff, and I'm getting text pages, pages, calls, interruptions from doctors, and you lose your train of thought. You lose where you are in your handoff, and it does create a safety risk for the patient. The other really important piece, and I think we're seeing this across the country, is pay turnover. And there is more and more data coming out about the number of admissions that you get, the number of transfers to a step-down unit, to another place in the hospital, if you're working in a children's hospital, to a general pediatrics, to another facility, and then the number of discharges. And all of that, in addition to providing for the patient's that you're caring for on your team contribute to near misses, um, patient harm, and patient safety. And so there's a lot of data that's coming out about this across the healthcare systems. And I think you mentioned uh, resources and having resources available. And Roxanne mentioned as a new to practice NP, how she had a fear of being the only provider available. And at night, I'm sure across NICUs, across the country, there is probably one sole NP provider on at night, caring for the whole entire unit. And not to mention 
they might be responsible for attending all high-risk deliveries as well. And talking about, you know, let's talk about interruptions in your workflow. I mean, you could be in the middle of writing notes or handoff and the pager goes off, you have to go down to the delivery room. So, you know, if you're the sole provider, that's a lot of pressure and that's a lot of stress and leaves a lot of room for, for errors. Absolutely. And so one of the things that I ended up doing for my own practice is if I get a text page or an interruption of I need to go to a delivery or I need to go to this patient's bedside and it's not an emergent situation or there's an interruption for a non-emergent order, my response back in in a professional manner is I'm in the middle of a safety moment. I will come to you when I'm done and we can address whatever you need, if it's an order or if it's, you know, a, a patient scenario. Now, that's all better off if it's a true emergency and I need to um, go take care of something. But I think it's important that we have a voice to be able to say, I need this as my protected time in order to provide safe care to X amount of patients. Exactly. It's changing the the culture of safety. And, you know, hopefully this position statement will give APRNs the voice and the power to say, hey, we need to change the culture of safety on our unit to provide the best care and provide better outcomes for, for the babies. The other point of the position statement is fatigue, right? We know that patient safety is important. We all come into this profession to help people, help babies, moms and babies and their families, reduce harm, right? We do all of those things. But how do we, as APRNs and healthcare professionals, protect our patients? And overwhelming amounts of data and support related back to provider fatigue and how that impacts patient safety. And so we then dived into, we went down like multiple rabbit holes. uh, Yeah, we did. (laughs) But it's important, right? Like we wanted this to be very thorough um, review of literature. And so we went down the fatigue rabbit hole and that's astonishing data. Like, like blow your mind emoji. (laughs) So we know that there is a correlation uh, between healthcare workers fatigue and patient safety. And a lot of other organizations have provided statements on this, ACOG, AANA, um, just to name a few. And then NAN is also providing their position statement. So what is the data showing that is related to our practice as APRNs in the NICU? So great question. So the CDC found that 52% of healthcare night shift workers reported that they got less than six hours of sleep a night. So we then asked ourselves, well, how much sleep is enough sleep? And so we looked at the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. They said minimum of seven to nine hours of sleep a night. Then we went to ACOG, and they were less. They said 
five hours of sleep. And I don't know about you, but I can't function on five hours of sleep. So there's no clear answer. Um, I personally need a lot more. And I know that about myself. And I have sleep hygiene practices in place in order to um, meet my goal to be well-rested and to provide safe patient care. But what we then found is what does sleep deprivation do on patient safety? And this is where, like, the mind emoji situation comes in. So there is a delayed identification or lack of identification of critical markers of clinical deterioration. I'm going to say it one more time because this is the big one. Delayed identification or lack of identification of critical markers of clinical deterioration. Delayed reaction time. Delay in processing information. Diminished memory. Failure to respond at appropriate times impaired efficiency of care, and inappropriate responses. And that's crazy, right? Like you think about that and you're like, wow, I got to take, take pause and I got to reevaluate. Have I ever been in a moment where I'm like, I don't know that I'm safe to make one more decision today. And I can tell you I've been in that place and it's a scary place to be. I think the important piece, though, and Roxanne will talk about the recommendations in relation to this, is to be able to identify it, to be able to have the education to identify that you're at risk for not being able to make one more decision in your shift. Yeah, I mean, I think about like when I come home from a 24-hour shift and I'll tell my husband, I don't really remember driving home. And, you know, we've all said that. And you know, the rest of the day while I'm in a fog, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry I made that mistake at home. Like put the, the spoon in the knife section of the cupboard, you know, I'm, I'm just tired. I'm just tired. And we give that excuse at home and it's okay. But at work, it's not okay. It's certainly not okay. And that's what we were seeing in the real review of literature. Burnout is a hot topic um, amongst nurses and APRNs. Um, we're all experiencing it now, especially coming out of a pandemic. Um, and then we're talking about increased shift lengths of APRNs. We're talking about fatigue. So how does shift length and burnout come to play in the position statement? And what is that ultimately doing to us as practitioners, to our health, to our ability to perform at our best at our jobs? Absolutely. So there's a lot of data um, related to shift work. And what does that mean, shift work? And so you're talking about 12-hour shifts, 24-hour shifts, rotating between days and nights and everywhere else in between, weekends, holidays, all of those things. We know that those that working shift work, as well as the number of hours that you work, increases your risk of burnout decreases job satisfaction, decreases your overall well-being. And the data then goes on to say that those of us who work shift work and very long hours for many years 
increases your risk of cardiovascular complications, GI disorders. Um, you have a decreased immunologic response. There's increased risk for infertility, miscarriages, preterm birth, and low birth weight infants, sleep apnea, obesity, diabetes, cancer, mood disorders, and depression. Thank you it's for that long stuff, right? <laughs> Thank you for that long exhaustive list that um, I'm a night shift worker, so um, I feel that. <laughs> and it's scary. It's scary to know that that's what it's doing to our health. It is scary. So right, like then like just take a step back and say, I went into the nursing profession to care for other people. At what point am I going to start caring for myself? And I think that's a really important question to ask as we start to go over these recommendations. And again, recommendations that you can pick and choose from that's going to work for you, for your life, for your place of employment, and for the team of APRNs that you work with. So it's easy to say to somebody, people that might not experience shift work, just get more sleep go to bed early. What are some tips for fatigue management that the position statement discusses that will help decrease these issues of burnout and decrease uh, issues with patient safety that we discussed earlier? Yeah, so we want to make sure that you understand, all you listeners, that these are recommendations. This is not gospel. This is recommendations. So remember that just like the first set of fatigue guidelines, recommendations, this is what your profession says is best practice. And we've looked at it. We have picked out task forces with very highly qualified people that have spent, it takes over a year to get one of these position statements written and or revised. So this is not done lightly. I want you all to know that. And when we look at the recommendations, we broke them into the pillars of NAN. So the first one we look at is education. So we are doing just that. We're, we're acknowledging and educating you and hopefully your employer and other professionals um, that we have a fatigue problem because of the nature of what we do, the acuity, the patients. You know, nowhere else in the hospital is there a patient that is as sick as ours, quite honestly. And when I talk to other physicians, they are astonished at the work that we are doing as nurse practitioners. Even I work in a small hospital, what we're able to do and the responsibility level. So the first step is education. So we need to make sure in our, in our NNP programs that we are letting people know that this is an issue and that they need to manage it. We need to include things like sleep physiology, sleep inertia, personal limitations and knowing what fatigue mitigating strategies we all have. Uh, we need to look at the, the unique relationship between working these extended hours and what happens to fatigue and burnout. And I know every employer right now is acutely wanting to know what's going on with recruitment and retention. And I keep circling back to this saying, you know, give us good workload and give us good hours, and we will stay. Um, people want to be happy with their workload. We need to also look at continuing education and making sure that we know 
that it is our responsibility as personal representatives of our own bodies that we come to work rested and ready to work. And my contract says that, that I have to come to work rested and ready to work. And that means that I need to make sure I get to bed at a good time the night before, that I'm not exhausted going into a shift, and that I'm not moonlighting so much that I'm not telling anybody I'm at another job and then I scurry over to this job. Because believe me, we've all done it or we're doing it because we like to help, okay? The second thing for fatigue management we're going to look at um, is looking at things like sleep hygiene. So we look at things like, should we work rotating shifts? Should we work straight days? Should we work straight nights? What can we do there? And it became very clear that most of the literature said that we need approximately eight hours of sleep per day. And I always love when, like my daughter, when she got an iPhone and she said, oh, I got this cool app that gradually wakes me up, you know, in the morning when my circadian rhythms were going well, and it really helps me. And I thought, well, that's nice, but that's never going to work for a nurse, right? Right? So looking at circadian rhythms, um, making sure we get opportunities for sleep in the afternoon um, before working overnight, if you're working night shift, I think all nurses have learned that, but how often do we stop and do it? right? You know you're going in for a night shift. You know you got to take a nap, but life gets in the way. So make sure that that is a priority. Um, Be really aware of this. Um, One thing that I'm acutely interested in, and I was also on the senior staffing solutions, should I stay or should I go paper? And this is what we brought in from that paper, which is number six on fatigue management. NNPs who are older than 40 years of age need to know that we don't experience fatigue the same way that younger colleagues do. And I started out as an NNP in my late 20s, and I'm now in my late 50s. So I can tell you from personal experience that this is so true. The average NNP age right now, according to our workforce summary, is 51. So this is very relevant to what we're doing in our profession. Because of all these reasons, and you need to go back to that paper and read it if you want, we recommended that NNPs older than 50 should have night shift um, optional. And we looked at our physician colleagues, and many of those after 50 don't take ER call, they don't take night call, and it's because of this. We need to support our older NNPs and give them this because they have earned it, Uh and it's important It is so important to patient safety. And some of the younger colleagues say, well, that's not fair. I don't want to work nights either. And I don't want to work your nights. Well, you know, we've got to give and take here. So just like in nursing with us as well, we need to do this. We also need the opportunity as older NNPs to work shorter shifts. So I should be able to go to my employer and say, I really function better on a 12-hour shift. 24s are really hard for me. And I need to be able to have an environment that is going to allow me to say that without fear of retaliation. So from my colleagues and from my employer. The next one is kind of a revisit of what we said before in the last paper, that opportunities for rest need to be incorporated into our shift. And we know that even 
five minutes of sitting down in a quiet room and closing your eyes does wonders for ourselves, right? With our vision, with our mental acuity, with just our overall fatigue of just taking a break. So we really need to look at this, and we dive more into that in there. We added in this paper, compared to the last one, that if you are getting your protected nap time or you have a time where you can have downtime, that you need to be smart about it. Be smart. Don't turn on your phone and answer all your emails, right? Don't catch up on TikTok or Facebook. Don't be talking to your kids. This protected time needs your phone turned off, your beeper handed off, and you need me here. So that's really important. We talk again about consuming caffeine, you know, watching that. I think we all know about that. I'm not going to get into that too much. Drowsiness, we looked at a lot of stuff uh, in the data. And one thing we were looking at was resident fatigue. And they were saying that if they were there too long and getting drowsy on the job, there was a relief mechanism built in. And we don't always have that. Like where I work, I'm the only one there for 24 hours in the building. So if I get tired, I can't say to somebody, hey, I'm tired. But what we need to do is build in a a relief system so that I could call the on-call physician and I could say, I'm really exhausted. I've been slammed with five admissions and I need a break. And they should be able then to have a mechanism to do that. Again, things like nutrition and meal breaks are needed with respite time. We need to be able to go to the bathroom. We need to be able to eat, right? And it is our responsibility, right? I'm preaching to the choir. We all laughed for years about nurses who were smokers, that they always took their breaks. Well, it dawned on me early in my career that it was up to me and me only as a non-smoker to make sure I took my breaks too. So it it depends on how important that is to the nurse of what you're going to get. Okay, there are a lot of apps now, like I was talking about, for your phones that can facilitate better sleep practices, that track it, that help you fall asleep. Some of those things are really, really helpful. Um, I think what is very invaluable in the position statement is the discussion on systems management, because these issues cannot fall on the NNP alone and on their ability to make these changes because oftentimes it's a systems management issue at the institutional level where the APRN is working. So what are some of the recommendations in the position statement that can help change the working environment for the APRN, help make these changes easier on them? Yeah, so thanks for that question, Jill. So this is really looking at not only your employer, but the institution and the environment. So it might be the culture of your area. So all those things kind of was what systems management means. So we're looking at things like maximum hours worked per week. And we came up with that in the first paper, that 60 hours, we got it straight from ANA, was enough. And anything over that, you can say no thank you to. Um, all these kind of things, moonlighting hours, we're going to talk about that. Scheduling is vitally important. We all know schedules make or break our lives, but we, we are not good at, personally, and I see it in groups I work with, is scheduling it for fatigue. So what I mean by that is that I may want two weeks off to go do XYZ, and therefore I'm going to cluster all my shifts in another part of the month. 
And then I'm tired and cranky. So we have to be really careful that we're spacing things out. We set clear guidelines in the first paper, no more than three every other 24-hour shifts, you know. And interestingly enough, that's okay most of the time. But when you throw in things like overtime and mandatory overtime and on call, you quickly end up with five, maybe six every other shifts or a whole month. I know people working whole months of every other shift. Uh, or leaving one job and going straight to the next one. So we have to be very careful, not only at the institution level, but with every NNP. Again, we reiterated that the maximum shift length should be 24 hours. Now we're talking about in-house 24 hours. So if you're working in a level one and you have an apartment or a call room somewhere, you can leave the building, you can go out, that's a different animal, okay? So again, 24 hours in-house is the maximum amount of shift you're going to be working. Again, we talk about relief call system to, to cover for us who feel impaired by fatigue. Again, we said what we said in the first pa paid paper, excuse me, a protected sleep time following 16 consecutive hours of working should be provided. We don't absolutely say what this has to be, but you need a break is what this is saying. And that's when you hand off your pager, you go into a quiet environment. And we do spell that out in this, that it needs to be dark, quiet, no pagers and take a break. And then you're responsible for turning off your phone and resting. Okay. We need to also look at work assignment so that we have recovery from work um, so if you feel like you just worked a whole bunch in a row and you can't possibly do one more, you need to be talking about that and make sure we're watching that. Avoidance of day and night swing shifts um, is important for our sleep. So people might want to consider different ways. Uh, ANA talks about consider day-night rotations, maybe on a monthly basis instead of every two weeks or a week. One thing that I think was going to gain traction for NNPs in general is team-based care models. Now that we have all sorts of different people in the NICU giving care to babies. Um, so we talk about that on point 14 here. So we need to make sure if we have team-based care models that we're communicating well among them, we're distributing the workload well. So I'm talking about if you have a team of a couple NNPs and then a PNP, maybe a PA, maybe a fellow, uh, a couple neonatologists. How do you distribute this workload? How do you use your systems, your computers, et cetera, rather than have a single NNP responsible for the patient's care? We need to look at teams. And when you have a team, you can also share the workload and the fatigue, right? So if somebody's tired on the team, they can tap out and the other team members can take over. You can also go to your delegated team members and check your things like medications, doses, procedures. Hey, give me a hand with that. Or I don't feel like I'm the best person to do an intubation right now. I'm tired. And I'm not seeing clearly right now to do this 23-week triplet intubation, right? All right. So all those things are really important. They need to make sure that uh, institutions should prioritize the education of NNPs and caregivers to understand that you need to be rested and fit in order to deliver optimal patient care. They need to understand that there are truly effects of fatigue 
and sleep deprivation to us and to our patients. Employers should conduct regular audits to ensure that scheduling policies are maintained. So do you, do you practice what you preach, right? Are you auditing this and making sure that people are taking their meal and rest breaks? I think that would be so helpful to say, hey, let's audit this and see, are we really doing it? We say you can have a break, but are you really able to take your break? We go into compensation, and we worked very hard at at NANIP on the council when I was on to get us more compensation. We did all the salary surveys, and we started sharing information. And when we started that, they told us that that was unprofessional to discuss salaries. And we quickly learned that unless you talk about something like fatigue or salaries, nothing ever gets changed. So we need to look at compensation so that people aren't working a million hours of overtime and moonlighting, right? They should be able to decline extra hours or overtime without being penalized. You know, this is not a contest to see how tough Roxanne or Jill or Taryn is. This is about what you feel you can handle. Um, Commutes have to be figured into shifts. And some people will argue that if they're doing 12-hour shifts and they have a long commute and they have kids at home, by the time they go to work, work, go home, put their kids in bed, and get ready for the next day, they're only getting five hours of sleep. So there is an argument that 12-hour shifts may be driving less sleep. So that's one of the things we're going to talk about in recommendations for further study. Um, I think that's some of the main things there. One of the things we did add on there, um, handoff, Taryn already alluded to, was home call. So if you're talking about taking call at home, that needs to be counted as well with the maximum hours worked and your work relief system built in. So during all of our discussions and the research and the data that's out there isn't very NICU specific. And it's very clear that we need further research in this topic. So what is the NANAP Council and NAN doing to uh, spearhead some uh, research in these areas? I think that's really important question, Jill, because it became clear that there is a lack of evidence in literature to answer this critical question, how long is too long for your shift length, 12 versus 24, 8 versus 10? We don't have the answer for that, and we don't have the answer that's going to be specific to the NICU. And so in the position statement, we asked that there is dedicated research to this area so that we can answer this question to be able to better guide the APRN colleagues across the country to ensure that the shift length is appropriate to provide safe patient care. The other thing that we recommended, and again goes back to some of the data that I talked about in the beginning of this episode, was limiting shift length to 12 hours in level four units or all practice level nurseries and NICUs by 2030. And you know that's hard, that might be hard to swallow, but I think the data is there and it's strong enough to be able to say, we need to do this 
to protect our patients. And then overall, we need more information about patient safety and the APRN neonatal nurse practitioner health and what these shift and the shift length and the quality of our work does to our health um, as we age and approach retirement. We don't have those answers yet. That's so important what you said, Taryn. You know, I'm, like I said, an older NNP now, and I'm, I'm experiencing the effects on my health. You know, I, I hardly can ever sleep at night anymore because every little bing, ding, whatever um, wakes me up. Um, so the cortisol levels, I think, should be studied in older NNPs or our NNPs in general. And I will say to people who are, I'm going to ask the people who are really upset about this paper and don't like these recommendations, I'm going to ask you to do research and show us the right way to go with this because we are making recommendations for all of us based on the data that exists, which is not for NNPs. So if you're an NNP and you feel strongly about this, then set up a research study, talk to Nan, get involved in a research study. And we have a couple people that are interested in doing this research and answering these questions for us. Great. You, you know, you guys both have done amazing work and very important work. You know, we're all here for the babies and that's what matters the most. And it's, you know, when nurses come together, like we said earlier, they do great things. So thank you so much for joining us and really talking to us about these critical issues. Our pleasure. Thanks, Jill. Make sure you never miss an episode of NANCAST by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day. 